We are continuing in our study of the Psalms of Ascent. We're in Psalm 132, and if you were singing along with Pastor Ryan and the praise team and the congregation, I hope you were, then uh, you pretty much got the sermon. And um, I didn't tell you that before we prayed because I didn't want you to slip out while we were praying. But um, I, I don't know how um, I don't know how Pastor Ryan managed to be um, so on the same page with me, except you know the Spirit of God. But that was uh, such such a tremendous blessing to sing, uh, really the truths that we're thinking about in Psalm 132. So if you have had the opportunity to read Psalm 132, you know that it is the longest of the Psalms of Ascent. It's, um, it's fairly complex in its structure. It's deeply historical and it's really beautifully prophetic. And uh, it shares with us really some wonderful truths that can help us as we seek to live a life of faith. So what I wanna do this morning as we deal with Psalm 132 is, I want us first of all, just to, to work our way through the text so that we have a, a foundational understanding of what's going on. And, and this is what we wanna, we wanna see in verses one through five, we wanna see David's passion uh, for worship. And then in verses six through 10, we wanna see Israel's prayer uh, for worship. And then in verses 11 through 18, we wanna see the Lord's promise where the Lord responds to the passion of David in verses 11 and 12. And then the Lord responds to the prayer of the people of Israel in verses 13 through 18. And then um, with the rest of our time, uh, we wanna focus really on the heart of this Psalm, which is three words. And those words are covenant, son, and forever. And we wanna think about those three words specifically as we think about living a life of faith. And really, I think my task is to bring our attention to what we learn from those three words that will enable us and help us as we trust and follow Jesus every day. So let's, let's dig into the text. And, and we have a, a people who are ascending to Mount Zion. And as they do, they are remembering certain things about their history. So in verses one through six, they are remembering David's passion. So let's, let's read in verse one. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. So we, we talked last week a little bit about how the fact that David was anointed as king when he was a young man. And then it was, it was really 15 years before he became the king of Judah. And those 15 years were filled with hardship and affliction and, and great burdens. And then even after David became king, there were burdens in, in, his, in his life. And so eventually he, he became king in, in Hebron. This is recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter two. So David becomes the king of, of Judah and his rule is set up in, in Hebron and, and he rules there for seven years. And basically there's a, a civil war that takes place between the northern tribes who are still ruled by Saul and Judah in the south who's ruled by David. And, and eventually that civil war comes to an end and Saul's life is ended. So Saul has died in 2 Samuel chapter four and all of the 12 tribes are united under the rule of David. And we, we think of this as really the golden age of, of the nation of Israel and it was, 
It was the golden age for David, but there was still hardship. Again, David had gone through a whole lot. Even when he was king, there were people that rebelled against him. His own son, Absalom, rebelled against him. And so David carried a great many burdens, but the greatest burden that David carried was his desire to restore worship. David was a man who was devoted to God and, and he was passionate about loving God and worshiping God. And so when David became king, 2 Samuel chapter 5 tells us the first thing that David did is he led an assault against Jerusalem, which was held by the Jebusites, and he defeated the Jebusites and ran them off, and he established Jerusalem as the capital of the unified nation of Israel. And then the second thing that he did, recorded for us in 2 Samuel 6, is that David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So the ark had been in the south where David had been ruling and he brought it up to Jerusalem and established Mount Zion as the place of worship. Now, David had a couple of things in mind when he did this. First of all, when he brings the ark to the, to the city of Jerusalem, well, the, the ark is the visible representation of God's rule. Okay, when the people of Israel thought of God's throne as being in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant was his footstool. And so when they saw the Ark of the Covenant, they were reminded of the rule of God ruling over heaven and earth. And they also thought of, of the Ark of the Covenant as a reminder of the presence of God because everywhere that the people had gone during the Exodus, as they traveled through the wilderness, the Ark had gone with them. It was always in the middle of the camp reminding them, God is with you. And so now it's on Mount Zion as a reminder that the presence of God is there in Jerusalem. And the Ark was also, it was also a reminder of God's mercy. It was at the, it was at the Ark of the Covenant where the covenant mercy of God was dispensed to the high priest on the day of atonement on behalf of the people of Israel. So the ark had a very powerful, tangible, visible representation of the presence, the rule, and the mercy of God. And so having the ark in the city of Jerusalem did a couple of things. First of all, it tied God's rule to David's rule. So by having the Ark of the Covenant in Jerusalem, which was now the capital, David is saying the king of Israel is going to rule under the direct command of God. So it was a reminder to the people, David is the king, but God is really the king. And David is ruling under the favor of God. But then secondly, by bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, David was saying worship is going to be central to the people of Israel. We are bringing the Ark. We're going to put it on the highest place in the capital city as a reminder that God is with us and God is worthy of our worship. And so God is the priority. God is, is the, the, the preeminent a uh, person existing in the in the nation of Israel, so it's it's set up there in in the city of Jerusalem. So then, and then Second Samuel chapter seven, God says that He gave the Bible says that God gave David peace and security and rest from all his enemies around him. So we've gone from David being anointed to David being the king to the unified Israel capital in Jerusalem. The ark is brought to Jerusalem, and then God gives the people rest. So David is ruling as king, everything is secure, everything's serene. And one day David's out looking from his palace. He's established, he looks out the window of his palace and he looks up on Mount Zion and he sees the tent, the tabernacle where the Ark of the Covenant is. And he thinks, you know what? God's dwelling in a tent. And, and here I am dwelling in a palace. And, and it, was a, it was a lovely tent. I mean, it, it, you know, it had embroidery. 
and it had, it had treasure inside. It was, it was a really, really nice tent. But at the end of the day, it's a tent and a tent is a tent. And, and so David, David is like, you know what? I'm living in a palace. God is dwelling in a tent. God's so much greater than me. He's the real king. So David had this passion and it was really an obsession to give God a house. And David thought God deserved this. And so this was the passion that, that drove him. And so then the people pray in response to that passion in verse six through 10. So the Bible says, behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of Jair. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And so the people, they hear that David is doing this. Ephrathath is just another name for the city of Bethlehem. The fields of Jar are the rural areas around Bethlehem. So this is referring to the place where David had been ruling down in Judah around the area of Hebron. That's David's old stomping ground. So the people here, oh, David has brought the ark from where he used to be ruling up to Jerusalem. So we heard the ark has moved to Jerusalem. And so their response is one of great excitement. And so they say, let's go, let's all get together and let's go to Jerusalem. And then as they're going, they pray and their prayer is in verses eight through 10. And basically they say, arise, O Lord. What they're saying is, Lord, we're going to Jerusalem and we want you to go as well. We want you to be there. So when we get to Jerusalem to worship at the ark, we want our worship to be pure. We want it to be sincere. We want it to be true. We want it to be joyful. And that won't happen unless you show up. And so they're saying, God, we don't want rituals by unqualified priests. We long to encounter you. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. So they're saying, Please remember the passion that David had for worship and let that be real in us as well. So the people are praying and they're praying because just like David, they were filled with a desire to worship. And there's essentially a, a time of revival for the people of God. Now, this is not the point of this sermon, but that's a pretty good prayer. Now, I don't know if you've thought about this. I don't know if you got up this morning and you thought, man, I'm going to church. I better pray that God will meet us there. If you didn't pray that, then I'm just tell you, you missed a golden opportunity. Because this service is not about me. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. And we need to remember, we're very thankful for Pastor Josh and Pastor Ryan. And, and Pastor Josh has said this numerous times. We don't plan our services to attract me. We plan our services to attract God. Because listen, if I'm not here, it's no big deal. If God's not here, then why are we here? And so here, here's a great prayer. We're praying, God, we're going to worship you and we want you to be there. So then God responds. And God gives a promise in verses 11 and 12. So he's responding first to the passion that David had. So verses 11 and 12, the Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body, I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant 
and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on the throne. So this is the heart of the psalm where they are remembering the promise that God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And that promise is, David, you will have a descendant who will sit on the throne ruling forever. So if we went back and read 2 Samuel 7, we would see David talking about this. And David says to God, God, I want to build you a house. So David's attitude is, God, I want to do something significant for you. And God's response is, David, our relationship is not about what you do for me. It's about what I do for you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to build your house. I'm going to give you a descendant who will sit on the throne forever. Now, there's, there's a little dilemma with this promise. This, this promise is, first of all, unconditional. God says, I am going to do this. So David will absolutely have a descendant who sits on the throne forever. In fact, we could say David cannot fail to have a son who is ruling forever. But the promise is also conditional, isn't it? And it's conditional in that God says, if your descendants keep my commandments, if your descendants keep my law, then you will sit on the throne forever. So God says, it's really only the obedient son of David who will sit on his throne forever. Now that's a problem because David is the best king there is. I mean, David is, he is, he is the embodiment of a perfect human king. And yet David fell into grievous sin. David's successor, Solomon, fell into grievous sin. The next generation, the kingdom was divided because of sin. And there was a direct Davidic dynasty that lasted for 400 years and it is filled with sin and rebellion and it degenerated into a stinking mess and eventually completely fell apart. And so the dilemma is this, if perfect obedience to the command of God is required, and even David is a sinner, then how is God going to keep that unconditional promise? Well, that paradox is resolved in the person of Jesus. Because Jesus is the descendant of David who perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Listen to what the Gabriel, angel Gabriel said to Mary at the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1 and verses 31 through 33. He said, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus and he will be great and will be called the son of the most high for the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign upon the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, there will be no end. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, prophesied in Luke chapter 1 and verses 68 and 69. And he said, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. The apostle Paul, when he began his epistle to the Romans, began by saying in Romans 1, 3, that Jesus Christ is, according to the flesh, the son of David, but he is, by the power of the resurrection, the very son of the living God. So Jesus is the fulfiller of the promise that as David's descendant, 
As a man, he perfectly obeyed the law of God and he fulfilled the condition so he earned the right to rule forever. But he is also the son of God and because he is the eternal son of God, his rule is necessarily eternal. So he inherently possesses the right to rule. So Jesus Christ, son of David, son of God, has both earned the right to rule and possesses inherently the right to rule. So he is the king of kings who will rule forever. He is the king who will sit on the throne for David. And God said to David, I am gonna do this. So then we see God's response or God's promise to the people in verses 13 through 18. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame and be on him and on him his crown will shine. So the people have prayed, Lord, we're gonna go up to Jerusalem because that's where David took the ark and we want you to go. And God says to the people, well, listen, I'm going, but I'm the one who chose that place. So this is not David's thing. This is my thing, God says. I, I am the one who has established my place of worship in Jerusalem. And so when you go there, I will be there. And so God says, here's my promise to you, that you, you will have my presence. I will, I will dwell on Mount Zion forever. You will have my provision. I will provide for you physically and spiritually. I'll give the poor bread. I'll give the priests their salvation. I'm gonna protect you. I'm gonna raise up a horn. That's a, an animal metaphor that, that refers to, to power and strength and the ability to, to fight and protect. He says, I'm gonna defeat all of your enemies. I'm gonna surround you with light. And so God's promise is to David, I'm gonna give you a son who will rule forever. And to the people, it is through that son who rules forever that you will find everything that you need to have a relationship with me. And so here are the people, they are ascending to worship. And as they're singing this Psalm, they're thinking, you know what? This is, this is about the here and now, but there's a whole lot more going on here than us just worshiping today at the tabernacle. This is an eternal thing. This is a, this is a relationship with God. And we're not just praising him today. We're, we're praising him forever. And, and we're going up not just to show God what we can do for him. We're going up to remember what God has done for us. And remembering what God has done for us is gonna usher forth in, in praise. So God has made a promise. And that promise is a covenant that one of David's sons will rule forever. So that's kind of where we're going with Psalm 132. So let's, let's think about what, what they're focused on. And let's think about us as we trust and follow Jesus. What do we need to remember every day? And this is what I wanna encourage you in, that every day as we live a life of faith, every day as we trust and follow Jesus, what will encourage our faith to persevere in a life of worship? Well, I think we find it in this promise that God makes to David. So first of all, God says, I'm gonna make a covenant. So this teaches us that we have a gracious God. 
We have a gracious God who has given us favor. So the covenant with David teaches us that Christianity is not about what we do for God, but it's about what God does for us. And the, the very fact that the eternal creator of heavens and earth would, would condescend to come and make a covenant with sinful, rebellious people is nothing more than an act of sheer grace. That a, a covenant-making God is a God who says, I'm gonna give you what you don't deserve. That I'm gonna do for you what you could never do on your own. And so this covenant that God makes, the Davidic covenant is what we could call really a, a sub-covenant that is the unfolding of God's one eternal covenant of grace by which he, because he is gracious and loving, forgives sinners and gathers unto himself a people for his eternal glory. Now this began in eternity past, but it was manifested in creation. And Adam and Eve had a relationship with God. That relationship was based upon their obedience. God gave them a command. And they said, if you will obey this command, you'll live. If you disobey this command, you will die. That command was to not eat from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. They disobeyed that command and their relationship with God was severed. But that wasn't the end of God working in humanity because God said, he came and he said, I've got a better way. And it's a better way of grace. And so in Genesis 3.15, he said, I'm gonna send a savior. I'm gonna send someone who is gonna come and who's gonna crush the head of the serpent. And God began to unfold his plan of grace to save sinners. We come to Noah. And in Genesis 8 and 9, God made a covenant with Noah. And he said, Noah, I want you to go and I want you to multiply and fill the earth and extend my glory. And the reason I'm sending you to do that is because in response to what I've done for you. I have saved you. I have saved humanity. I have given you life. I've delivered you from judgment. And so in light of what I've done for you, Noah, you go and fill the earth. And we come to Abram. And Abram was called by God to come out of the earth of Chaldees and God made a covenant with Abraham. And he said, Abraham, I'm gonna do something for you. I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna make you a great nation and through you, all of the world will be blessed. God was saying, I'm gonna send the savior through one of your descendants who will bless the world. And Abraham said, well, how, how in the world am I supposed to know that this is true? And God said, well, I want you to, I want you to bring some animals, bring a, bring a heifer, bring a female goat, bring a ram, bring a turtle dove and, and bring a pigeon. And I want you to cut those animals and put them in a ditch. And this is the way ancient people made covenants. They would get an animal, they'd cut it in half, and they'd lay that animal on both sides of the ditch. So the blood ran into the ditch. And two people would come and make a covenant. They would stand in the blood of that animal, in the midst of that animal that had been divided. And they would, they would make a covenant one with another. And essentially what they were saying in, in very graphic terms is, if I violate this covenant, then let happen to me what has happened to this animal. And so God had Abram cut those animals and lay them out in the ditch and the blood runs into the ditch. And Abram went up on the hillside and he sat and watched. And the Bible says that while Abraham watched as a passive observer that a smoking pot and a blazing torch 
two symbols of the presence of God passed between those animals. And what God was saying to Abram was, Abram, I'm not making a covenant with you. I'm making a covenant with myself and you are the beneficiary. And while God did the work for Abram, Abram sat as a passive observer on the hillside watching a God of grace do what only a God of grace could do. Then we move on to Moses and Moses had a covenant with God on behalf of the people of Israel. God said in Exodus chapter 19, I'm gonna make a covenant with you and I'm gonna make you my treasured possession. I'm gonna make you my own peculiar people. He reminded Moses in Deuteronomy 7, 7 that I did not choose you because you were more populous than other nations, because you weren't. I didn't choose you because you were more powerful than other nations, because you weren't. These were a people who are roaming around in the desert, completely insignificant in the geopolitical strategies of the world. And God came and made a covenant with them because he loved them and he promised to give them a land because that's what he wanted to do. We come to David, we see the same thing. God saying, David, I know that you think this is about you building me a house, but I'm gonna do something for you because our relationship is about what I do for you, not about what you do for me. And then we come to Jesus and in Jesus, we see the fulfillment of the new covenant that God had promised. And Jesus, the son of David and the son of God went to the cross and on the cross, Jesus made a covenant with us, with the father. And we stand as passive observers and we watch Jesus Christ lay down his life to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. And in Christ, God was reconciling the world unto himself. In Christ, God was making a covenant to include all those who by faith will trust in him. So Jesus said in Luke twenty two twenty, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is what God has done for us. This is the one eternal covenant of grace that is revealed in history and along the way God shows us that salvation is about God who is so full of grace and love that he condescends to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We think about the publican in the temple, tax collector, and he went into the temple. He was so broken he couldn't even... He couldn't even stand in the temple. He just fell in the back. And in the meantime, there's a Pharisee who's gone up to the front and he's saying, you know, God, it's, it's really good that you have someone like me on your team. I mean, I'm doing a lot for you. You know, I give, I, I, go, I go to the temple, I read the law, I, I pray. I'm, I'm really, it's really good that you have me and I'm, I'm doing for you everything that you expect me to do. And the publican tax collector's back in the back and he, he just cries out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus said he's the one who went away justified because he's the one who understood. It's not about what he does for God. It's about what God does for him. You see, the reality is David was a wonderful king, the best of human kings. He loved God. He wanted to worship God. He wanted to reflect God in his rule. But David was a sinful, fallen person who could never bring himself into God's presence. And so God comes to David's presence and he says, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to favor you by grace. Can I just say to you, believer, listen, we got to hold on to this. We have to hold on to the truth that God is a God of grace. 
And he has come into our lives and he's given us grace. And the fact that God is a God who makes covenants with sinful men should speak to our hearts every day that this is a God who loves us, who cares about us, who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Jesus Christ, God says in Romans 8, 31, I am for you, not against you. That's not just a song that Pastor Ryan made up. That's the very word of God. This God who makes covenants with sinful people. If we are in Christ, he says, I am for you, not against you. I have shown you favor and I will continue to show you favor. As he says in Romans 8, 32, that he who gave his son, will he not freely give us all things? God is a God of grace. David is the, the youngest son of, of Jesse. He's a, he's a shepherd boy out on the hillside. How in the world does he get from there to the palace in Jerusalem? I, I can't tell you where I was six, 45 years ago. You wouldn't let me preach. How, how do I get from where I was standing 45 years ago to where I am today? How do you get from where you were so many years ago to where you are today. I wanna to tell you something in human language, it's inexplicable, but by the grace of God, it's irrefutable and it's irrevocable that the God of heaven and earth, the one who is eternal and immutable and faithful has set his heart upon you and he sent his son for you. The God who calls to the nations, to every tribe, language and tongue, calls to your heart and he accepts you in the beloved and he adopts you as his very own. And everywhere you go, you walk in the covenant-keeping grace of God. You can start a new job where no one knows you. You can move to a new neighborhood where nobody knows your name. Some of you students are gonna be starting school in a couple weeks and you're gonna to go to schools. Maybe it's a new school and nobody knows your name. I wanna tell you when you walk down the hallway, the creator of the ends of the earth knows your name. And he loves you because that's what he is. He's a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. He is a gracious God. I think secondly, we need to remember, not only we have a gracious God, we have a great savior. We have a great savior. God promises David, not only a covenant, he promises him a son. And that son will be the one around whom all worship revolves. So this promise to David teaches us that Christianity is not found in rituals performed in a building. It's found in a person and his name is Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have eternal life. So the people prayed, Lord, will you come and meet with us? And God says, yes, I'm gonna come and meet with you through the son of David. I will come personally and permanently, not to a tent, not to a temple, but to a person. I'm gonna come with, to meet with you in the person of David's son and my son. So it is in Jesus that we find all the promises of verses 13 through 18 fulfilled. God promised his presence in Jesus, we experience the presence of God. When Jesus was born in Matthew 1, the Bible says you're to call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. 
John began his, his, um, his gospel account with these words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter four, Jesus talked to the woman at the well and she was confused about where to worship. She said, sir, am I to go worship at that mountain or that mountain? And Jesus looked at her and he said, I wanna tell you something, the time is coming and is now when people will worship God in spirit and in truth. Jesus Christ is the new meeting house. And we meet God when we come in faith to Jesus. And that means everywhere that we go, we go as worshipers, of God because the spirit of Christ dwells within us. We have God's presence and we have God's provision. In the Old Testament, as these faithful Israelites ascend the mountain to Mount Zion to worship, they're gonna have to offer in a sacrifice. If they come back the next day, they can offer another sacrifice. If they come back the next day, they can offer another sacrifice. If they come back the next year, they can offer another sacrifice. Every day, every week, every month, every year, the priests are on their feet offering sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews says, this man, when he offered one single sacrifice for all, he sat down, his work finished. Jesus said in John six thirty three, I'm the bread of life. Whoever partakes of me will never hunger again. He will never thirst Again, Jesus is better. He's the better sacrifice. He's the better mediator. He's the better high priest because he has finished the work sufficiently and eternally. And if you've come to him by faith, God has provided you with provision and you have fellowship with God. In Jesus, we find the provision of God. In Jesus, we find the protection of God. David wanted to build a temple well, Solomon did build that temple and, and it, was, it was unbelievable. Man, Solomon's temple was majestic. It was magnificent. It was glorious. It was beautiful. And one day the enemies of God came into Jerusalem and they desecrated the holy place and they looted the treasures and they tore down that temple block by burned out block. Jesus, who is the sovereign son of God, said in John 2, 19, you destroy this temple, speaking of his body, and I will raise it up in three days. Because God said in Psalm 16, 10, I will not allow my holy one to see corruption. On the third day, the Lord Jesus Christ came out of the grave, physically, literally embodied as a resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords, demonstrating the incorruptible, undefeatable, unconquerable, immovable and invincible power of God to keep you secure. So what, what Jesus tells us as the resurrected Christ is your standing with God is not dependent upon you. It is dependent upon the work of Jesus. So his empty cross and his empty tomb says, now there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have a great savior a savior far greater than any temple, a savior far greater than any high priest, a savior far greater than any sacrifice. We have a great savior in Jesus. And then thirdly, we have a glorious future. God says, I'm gonna make a covenant. I'm gonna send you a son and it's gonna be forever. It's gonna be forever. The rule of David ended, but the rule of Jesus will never end. 
And what Jesus has accomplished is eternal. So Jesus said to Martha in John eleven thirty five, 35, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I grew up in the 60s and 70s, so uh, we had really good music. But... Um, but um, a, 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 lot of our, a lot of our music was about, you know, like searching for meaning, you know. And um, I, I was a Jackson Brown fan. So in 1977, Jackson Brown released his hit, The Pretender. It's a, it's a, song, about, it's a, it's a song about the sadness, the purposelessness of just living for material stuff. It, it expresses a struggle. He puts it this way, uh, the struggle between the longing for love and and the struggle for the legal tender. And he talks about those who believe in whatever may lie in the things that money can buy. You know, the saddest line to me of that song is, at one point he says, in the, in the cool of the evening strolls the pretender, knowing that all his hopes and dreams end there. That's sad. To think you're going through life and everything is just right here. And my hopes and dreams are gonna die when I die. That's sad to think of people who spend their whole life just in the hopeless monotony of trying to find meaning and stuff that they buy and then come to the end of life and, and, and that's it. And that's the full extent of all of my time and all of my money, knowing that all of you you've done is dead when you're dead. Kind of reminds me of Esau. You know, Esau had been out hunting and he hadn't had a very good day. He hunted all day, hadn't caught anything. And he came back, he was famished. He saw Jacob and he, he came home and Jacob had been making a big pot of stew. Esau said, man, give me some of that stew. And Jacob said, I'll give you some of my stew if you'll give me your birthright. Now, listen, that meant two thirds of all the possessions of Isaac, which Isaac was a wealthy man. That meant being the next leader of the entire family. That meant receiving the promise of the Savior who would come into the world. So you've got two-thirds of your father's possessions. You've got the right to be the leader of the whole family. You've got, you're an ancestor of, of the Savior. And you got a, a bowl of soup. That's sad, isn't it? It's sad how we can give our lives to something that really has no significance that dies when we die. Listen, God has provided so much more in Christ. He gives us real life now, but he gives us a glorious life to come. In fact, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, that what God has laid up for us is, is more than we can think of, it's more than we can see, it's more than we can hear, it's more than we can even come up with in our heart. It's, it's beyond our imagination, all that God has given us. Christianity is certainly about here and now, it is, but it's about so much more than here and now for the fullness of salvation will be found in eternity when we stand gazing face to face into the, into the gaze of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get glimpses of that glory like on Sunday morning when we gather together, this weekly gathering is a, is a small taste of, of the funeral, when, uh, not the funeral, the future, that wasn't good, of the, of the future when... When I, don't, I don't know why I'm thinking about a funeral. Maybe 
of a future when we're gathered with all the saints of all the time from everywhere without sin, without temptation, without distraction to worship our God, to sing, oh, praise his name forever. And we can say that we have tasted and seen, but one day we will sit and feast. You can imagine these folks climbing up Mount Zion and they're thinking, man, we're gonna get to the tabernacle. We're gonna worship. Can anything be better than this? And someone says, oh yeah, something can be a whole lot better than this. We're gonna build a temple. And they build this glorious temple and they make their way up to the temple and they think, man, what a beautiful temple. This is a great day to worship. Can anything be better than this? And someone says, oh yeah, Jesus is coming. And then Jesus comes and, and he saves us and we gather together as the followers of Christ and we, we sing songs of worship and we, we kneel and pour out our hearts to God in prayer. We hear the word of God proclaimed and our fellowship is sweet and we're encouraged, we're challenged, we're built up and we think, can it get any better than this? Yes, it can. And yes, it will. God has laid up for us something we can't even imagine. And one day, the Lord Jesus will return and we'll sing with all the saints in his presence. And we won't have to stop because it's lunchtime. And we'll kneel before him without sin and without needs. We'll hear his very voice. We'll live in a new heaven and a new earth ruled by our eternal king who through his cross and empty tomb has placed all enemies under his feet forever. That's what God has for us. We have a gracious God who loves us, who's brought us into a relationship with himself and he's done it through a great savior, the son of David, the son of God, the Lord Jesus to ensure us a glorious future. And that calls us to worship, that calls us to joyful worship, praising him now because of what he's done in the past and looking with anticipation to what he's gonna do in the future. We needed something better. And so God gave us something better. And God did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That's what should encourage you in your walk of faith. So I just wanna ask you to ask your faith to remember this. Every day in the midst of the difficulties of, of living life of faith, to remember you have a God who is gracious. You have a great savior who has done the work and you have a glorious future that God is at work preparing for you. You are his and he won't let you go. So in just a moment, we're gonna pray. And after we pray, we're gonna sing and, and we're gonna sing praises to his name for what he's done and anticipating what he will do. And it's my prayer that, that this would be a time of, of real worship for us to think about these very things. If you have a decision that you need to share, if you're here today um, and you know in your life you've never come to a point of trusting Christ, we'll have pastors and prayer partners here at the front. And as we sing, you can come. The Lord Jesus invites you to come to him by faith and he will never turn you away. And we invite you to come. There'll be people here who can share with you or if you need to pray. Let's do as God leads. Would you join me as we pray?